Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, Chris Tilling, and Jules Martinez-Olivieri. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ben Myers, Associate Professor of Theology in the Graduate Research School at Alpha Crucis College in Brisbane. He is a research fellow of the Public and Contextual Theology Research Center at Charles Sturt University and an honorary senior research fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in the Humanities at the University of Queensland. Today, we will be talking about two of his many books, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism, part of the Christian Essentials series with Lexham Press, published in 2018, and the brand new children's book, The Apostles' Creed for All God's Children, illustrated by Natasha Kennedy, very recently published by Lexham. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Amy. Great to be here. Could you start us off talking about what your journey into theology looked like? Is there a moment or two that stands out as being particularly formative for you? Yeah, sure. Weirdly, although I now I'm an academic theologian, and I, I work in in uh, the area of theology. Uh, I've never actually studied theology. I've never taken classes in theology. I studied literature, and as a literature undergraduate, I um, stumbled upon Augustine's Confessions in a in a cheap, almost giveaway uh, box in in a bookstore, and I read that book and was completely just enthralled by this combination of um, intelligence and passion, the heart and the head. It was unlike anything I'd ever come across before. So really that was what plunged me into the waters of of Christian theology. Uh, And I became increasingly in my studies in literature, then I I began pairing literature with theology, looking at poets, for example, who, uh, you know, I've written on John Milton and George Herbert. I've taught Dante and Dunn and Emily Dickinson, but p- poets who um, are in- investigating the kind of Christian imaginative world. So that's that's how my interests start uh, started. It's it's a bit disappointing if you come to theology via Augustine's Confessions because it's all downhill after that. You actually read the best book first. So that was a mistake, but I didn't know. <laughs> well, you might get some people to go, no, there's other things, but you know, it, you're right. It's a little bit hard to beat. <laughs> Wonderful. So let's begin with your short book on the Apostles' Creed um, that comes as part of that Christian Essentials series. Um, this was a delightful read. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I, w- I would say this for a few reasons. First, that the structure was meditative, but accessible. Um, The thing that actually occurred to me as I was reading it, it reminded me of the experience I had as um, many, many years ago, picking up something like, I mean, subject wise, it doesn't quite work, but the experience of reading reminded me of like, Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest kind of thing, where you sort of enter into something that's kind of a rich short section that kind of you sit with it for a while. Um, So that I kind of had that experience and each word or phrase right from the creed receives about a three to four page 
explanation, reflection. And they're not, I mean, they're basic, but not basic. Um, and, and it was a really lovely opportunity to enter into this, this pretty simple creed as you might think. And these reflections are rich theologically, but also accessible enough um, that this is the first time in a really long time I've thought, this is a book I would feel good about giving to someone who is curious about Christianity. Um, And there aren't that many of those (laughs) that span that lovely kind of accessible, but also this is a good presentation of Christianity of like what it's about that kind of thing, which makes sense. Catechesis. Yeah. <laughs> and this, as I am sure, you know, is a rare feat. So thank you. So let's start with some big questions. What is a creed? What is the function of a creed and how is the apostles creed formed perhaps maybe differently than subsequent creeds? Sure. Thanks. They're all big questions, but the the easy answer, I mean, the word creed uh, means a statement of belief. Credo means I believe. So it's a confession of belief. And it's not as if creeds are found in all religions. It's not like a general anthropological phenomenon that if you have a religious sensibility, you end up with a creed. It's a very distinctively Judeo-Christian sort of mindset that you're I think where it comes from is the belief that God has acted and been revealed in history. And because God has acted and been revealed in history, there are certain things you have to remember when you transmit the faith to to your children, to the next generation. There are certain indispensable facts, if if, if you like, that need to be handed on. Um, And so in uh, you know, in ancient Israel, there's a huge emphasis on memory, on committing certain things to memory, talking about them repeatedly. Uh, and there are creed-like statements in, in the Hebrew Bible. The Shema Yisrael in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's not like a summary of everything that you need to know, but it functions like a measurement like a rule or a standard, anything else, if you're an ancient Israelite, anything else you say about God or about ethics or about life in the world has to measure up to that statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You can't formulate a belief or an ethical rule, let's say, that contradicts this belief. And so creeds have a, uh, to say a rule makes it sound overbearing or something, but it's like a it's like a rule that you give yourself to to remind yourself of who you are and of of what your fundamental commitments are. In the New Testament, there is also a very strong sense that God is revealed in history. In 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul has a creed-like formula. I handed on to you as of first importance what I had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and and so on. Um, a, a statement like that, you can see that this is Paul's way of holding in memory the, it, it's, it's like a point of reference that you use to measure everything else. Um, and of course, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is doing a lot of measuring. There are certain um, teachings and certain moral behaviors that he's bringing into um, contact 
with this fact that Jesus has risen. If Jesus has risen, what does that mean for the way we live? What does that mean for the way we think? What does that mean for our identity in the world? So the creed functions as this active memory, an active transmission. Certain things were transmitted to Paul and he transmits them to others. Um, and it acts as a, a sort of ruler, a, a, a measuring stick that you use. And the interesting thing about the Apostles' Creed, this is maybe the thing I like best about the Apostles' Creed, is that we literally don't know where it came from exactly. There's no first earliest text that is like, wow, this is, these are the people who first came up with this formula. Almost as early as you go in the in the Christian movement in the second century, you find creed-like statements that are linked to baptism. Um, they vary, but that basic shape of the Apostles' Creed, belief in God, the Creator, belief in Jesus Christ, who um, suffered, died, was buried, was raised, etc., belief in the in the um, Holy Church. Um, that basic structure, you just find cropping up in multiple languages, in multiple cultures, in multiple settings from about the second century on. And they're all linked to baptism. They're all linked to this act of transmission, that if, if you're a Christian, keep in mind that in the ancient worlds, you couldn't just go and check a book to see what it means to be a Christian. You, you, you had to be told this, this was a new religious movement. Um, and so the, the faith was handed on largely by word of mouth. And these creed-like statements functioned as a measure, or as it was called in Greek, a, a canon, a, a, a ruler that you can use to check whether your thinking and living are, are, are aligned with the the uh, the, the normative beliefs of the Christian community. Weirdly, if I can just throw one more uh, thing into this, even before there's something called a canon of scripture, there's this canon of faith, as it was called. And when there were like formal debates and discussions about which books should be part of the canon, one of the tests that those books had to pass was, do they line up to the canon of faith? In other words, you've got a creed even before you've got a Bible, at least in our modern sense of a Bible with an authoritative list of books. These texts were circulating and, and widely used, of course. Um, but uh, you, you can see the huge importance that, that the baptismal creed had for early Christianity, that they went there. They went to what we call the Apostles' Creed or something very much like it in order to check potential books of the Bible and see if they measure up. Yeah, so it's so interesting because it's so early. And um, with you do mention in the book that um, the other creeds that we have, right, we can kind of see where they come from. And there's this, just this assumption that in some ways, uh, and it's a misunderstanding even of the Nicene Creed, right, that it was, um, it kind of came as a result of people wanted to control belief or something like that. Um, but the Apostles' Creed, you can't really do that with because we don't know where it came from. And it seems to have been a pretty cross-Christianity situation that was drawn really from liturgy, from practice, from being in church and, and saying, hey, um, this is who we are. Um, so there's like an ownership of identity. 
Yeah, and it's genuinely organic. It clearly grows up out of and with this emerging sense of Christian identity. And the huge part that baptism played in the ancient church in in like a cataclysmic event that redefines you and redefines the world. Um, And you would memorize this formula, this this creed, and say it at your baptism. Uh, And by saying those words, you showed that you were, in fact, turning towards God. You were being immersed into the way of Jesus and and his people. Um, You're absolutely right, too. The the idea that even that the Nicene Creed is this invention of councils. Well, the Nicene Creed is the Apostles' Creed with certain elaborations and and clarifications. Um, And there are some... If you, if you think of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan revision of the Nicene Creed late in the fourth century, we, we have access to all sorts of information about the politics, who was chairing the discussions, who, who came, what were the issues at stake. Um, the, 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 the Apostles' Creed bears no, none of that sort of history. It's, it's not a product of a council. It's not a deliberate act of the church to formulate its belief in this way. It, it just happens organically. And, and again, I think this points to the fact that Christianity is peculiarly oriented towards history and towards memory and towards tradition. And so memorial-like acts emerge very, very early, right throughout the liturgy, if you think about it. There's all these ways of remembering and repeating stuff. As you were working through the creed and writing these reflections, which word or phrase became more meaningful to you or helped you connect with the creed in a new way? I've got to say for me personally, it's probably the first word, I, I believe. Um, of course, in in some languages, there's no separate pronoun I, but in, in our English translation of the creed, there's there's a word there, I. And writing the book about the creed, that was probably my favorite part and probably the part that I'd really thought the most uh, about and, and still think the most about. Um, the fact that you've got this formula that we've just been talking about that sort of emerges from nowhere and everywhere, wherever people are being baptized, they're saying words like this. It's been handed down from generation to generation in different um, languages, in different cultural settings. Um, these are clearly not my words. This is clearly an ancient, in fact, there's some bits of it that I we can't even say with full confidence exactly what they're referring to or exactly what they, they mean. Um, and yet I take these words that are not my own, that I don't fully grasp, words whose own history and original context I can't fully recover, I take those and say, I, I believe this. And, and I find that kind of obvious, but kind of profound as well, that, that in being a Christian, in being a baptized person, you're not called upon to formulate your own personalized um, confession. You're not called upon to decide for yourself what the essential content of, of Christianity is. You can do all that later, but the, 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 the sort of birthing, the, 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 big, the, the first act is to allow yourself to be inserted into something that is already there before you, the, 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 the body of Christ who collectively across time and place somehow form one voice and say, I believe. Uh, I find the eye almost chilling in a way, like I'm, I'm 
to, to, to understand it best, of course, you have to be at church where the creed is said, either at a baptism or at some other point in the liturgy, and to, and to have that feeling of a collective voice saying one thing together um, and the words that we say together, none of us has authored. None of us has chosen in any sense except almost passively. That would be too, too strong a way to say it. Um, but the, the, the agency that we exercise when we say I believe is, is an agency to allow certain things to be. Beyond that, beyond baptism, yes, we go on questioning. We go on, in, in the book, I raise all kinds of questions about the, the, the meaning of, of the creed. But that flows out somehow of this I where I allow myself to be identified with a community that uh, transcends my own interests, my own particular opinions, my own interpretation of, of the Christian faith. There's a sort of communal objectivity about it that I find quite impressive. So I love the eye. Yeah, well, and I, I, that that section it struck me as well. It was it was a close second for me, and I'll get to the one that connected with me here in a moment. But what you just talked about, it sounds, I mean, it's very consistent with thinking ar- around even the image of Pentecost, where you have the you know tongues of fire on each individual person who are speaking different languages from different regions, but yet the same spirit. And then Paul explaining, you know, like many gifts, different parts of the body, but the same spirit. And there's so there's this interesting individual, but also collective um, that goes that somehow aren't isn't collapsed, right? And I think, I mean, the individual the individual element is is amplified in a way because I do say I don't just say, yeah, that stuff is true. I say I believe this. So so. I think you're exactly right. There's there's a kind of amplification of the individual. My voice is needed in this moment. I I need to give voice to this. But the I that speaks through my vocal cords is not only me. It is me, but it's 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 more than that. It 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 it. There's something that is um, speaking through me, as it were. That, that, that there's a yeah. So I think it's both the communal and the individual held in this remarkable, um, I don't know, sort of reverberating together. So the one of the sections that really connected with me was the word almighty. Uh, you open with noting about our broken ideas about power, domination, control, et cetera. And, and I just want to read a short section here because it, it just, it really struck me. Um, you say, but that's not how might or power is understood in Christian teaching. The early Christians often compared God to a breastfeeding mother. It is a favorite image in numerous sermons and writings from the ancient church. We relate to God not like loyal subjects submitting to a powerful ruler, but like infants drawing nourishment from a mother. God's power is not only above us, but also alongside us, beneath us, and within us. It is not the power of subjection and control, but a power that frees and enables. And I love this, you know, as, you know, as an early church historical theologian, like I, you know, yeah, I know those images. <laughs> um, but it's really interesting, especially talking about baptism, you know, when I'm teaching classes now and I'm talking about um, baptism, whatnot, especially since I work with mostly Protestant students, the overwhelming image that they're used to is like death to life, which is, which is also a biblical image. Um, but that, that whole connection of like baptism is birth and all that imagery, that was so rich in the ancient church of being, you know, being born into a new family. 
um, was, and, but I hadn't really connected it like you did with power specifically. Um, so that section in particular really connected with me and was one of the, one of the, the great moments for me reading your book. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I mean, I was helped by this book uh, in writing this book. I was helped by the fact that I'd been teaching a class on the creed to undergraduates for like, I don't know, four or five years, maybe, um, consecutively. And this was in a fairly liberal Protestant sort of seminary where, I wasn't preaching to the choir. I was trying to present the creed as a flexible, interesting, provocative, nourishing way of thinking about your faith, even though you have lots of questions, um, even though there's lots of the things in the creed that don't seem to align very well with uh, with. Uh, our, our assumptions and expectations. And so it's a bit of a hard sell in, in an environment like that, getting to the word almighty and thinking, right, what are we going to uh, do with this? So, uh, but but I, it, it was one of many examples where actually it wasn't about trying to make the creed relevant, trying to adapt it somehow to modern concerns. Uh, we are now um, rightly sensitized to the problems with power and rightly a bit appalled at the thought that you would just take this concept of power and give lots and lots and lots of it to God. Um, uh, like that is quite a scary prospect for anyone who's ever um, been on the wrong side of power and seen how it can be um, used uh, destructively and abusively. But anyway, in, in dealing with the creed, actually just in looking at early Christian texts about power and just looking at the, the kind of trying to with with my students trying to put ourselves a bit into that imaginative world and, and think what 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 were the early christians um referring to what were they talking about what what might they have envisaged when they talk about god's might god's power um and and you discover that there's this much more um like you say enabling freeing conception of god's strength uh that that just runs through the uh, Christian tradition. I, I, I know you know this, Amy, but it 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 staggers me how frequently that breastfeeding image appears in Christian literature. It's not like I, I wasn't picking out little eccentric <laughs> footnotes from Christian history. This is a major imaginative resource, a major analogy based on human relationships that we can understand to think about the way God uh, relates to us. Um, yeah, so thanks. I'm glad you like that bit. Yeah, well, and, and it helps to understand the a little bit of the context underneath the book, because I do think that that, that, that audience helps shape this to be, um, as I mentioned, giving this book to someone who's maybe un, more unfamiliar with Christianity. It has, the, it has a hospitable sense to it. So that, that comes through. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I think, I think at times there's almost an apologetic flavor in some parts of the book, at least as I recall. And that's because th that arose exactly out of this context of teaching students who just were not on board. Some were still not on board by uh, by the the end of the, the class, and that was totally fine. We had still been reflecting on the Christian faith together using the creed. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to um, sign people up to anything, like pro proselytize them to become uh, card-carrying endorses of the apostles creed um 
but the 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 fact that the students in the class had these real concerns god as father is another really good example you you can't just pretend that the past century of reflection on this stuff you can't just pretend that feminism never happened and say oh yeah well god is this big patriarchal <laughs> um entity who relates to us like uh, you, you, you have to take seriously these questions but by again by pushing back into the world of early christianity i think you discover that even teachers in christian antiquity in in, in strange and surprising ways were sometimes quite sensitized not not to the same issues that we uh, have faced in uh, modernity but to some of the underlying questions for example about whether gender has any relationship to god or not and, and so one of the ones that always pops up and i'm i'm curious because obviously you know especially given the audience so you make mention of a of a person who when they say the creed they cross their fingers at the section on the virgin birth because well a virgin birth okay you know it seems a bit hard to swallow really uh, i really appreciated your section on this uh, would you reflect um on this phrase and the problem that comes with taking this line out of its proper context yeah sure and i have heard even i, I recall even a very distinguished well-known american theologian saying this with a laugh i i, I say the whole creed and and e even that line, but with my fingers crossed behind my back, uh, born of a virgin, Mary. Um, I think when someone approaches it that way, I think it's not their fault either. I think there's a there's a perception sometimes that we've just thrown in a random, extraordinary miracle story into the creed. Not just a miracle story, by the way. Let's pick the most implausible one of all. Let's pick the one that we have no kind of... Um, uh, Everything we know about um, biology, <laughs> everything we know about science cannot in any way fit with this. I think this is actually a misunderstanding, a, a misapprehension of what's going on. It's my view that this, this phrase, born of a Virgin Mary, is one of many ways that the creed keeps linking together Old Testament and New Testament, as, as we call them. Israel's story is marked by a series of miraculous infancy stories. Some of them are miraculous births. Some of them are um, extraordinary escape stories. Um, you have the story of Abraham and Sarah who are extremely old, unable to um, have a child, and God has promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation. And this promise, this is like the foundation of story of the Bible, the, the story of Abraham, this promise is brought about by a miraculous childbirth in her in her old age um, and her infertility. Sarah gives birth to a child and they're so overwhelmed that they name the child Isaac laughter. Um, you have Moses, the 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 if, if you if you think about what's the next major episode in Israel's story, um, it's the Exodus, the deliverance of the people of Israel from captivity and that the beginning of that episode is marked by Moses who is miraculously saved from the bulrushes after being set afloat when all the babies are being put to death and then through a kind of miraculous providential irony ends up being raised by his mother incognito as a servant and and and, and so on in the next kind of um, major epoch of Israelite 
uh, history, the period of the judges, you have the miraculous birth of Samson, who is this great warrior and, and deliverer. Um, in the, um, in the, the age of the prophets and kings, uh, the first prophet who, who be- becomes the first in this line of prophets and, and their um, uneasy uh, connection to a line of kings, you have Hannah, who is unable to conceive uh, and who pours out that prayer almost like not word for word the same as the as the prayer that Mary prays in the Magnificat, but clearly these are kindred texts, right? These are, there is a very close resemblance um, to the things that are being said in these texts. And the story bears a very close resemblance. All of that is to say, I think that for readers of the Bible, people immersed in the imaginative world of the Bible, if there was to be a colossal turning point in history where a new age is about to begin and God's God is about to be revealed um, in a def- amazing definitive new way, it makes perfect sense to expect miraculous childbirth, a miraculous infancy to mark the beginning of that period. And so I think that I think the virgin birth story, I think we really kind of miss the point of it if we think, oh, yeah, this was a way of trying to say that Jesus was a divine being because he had no human father. His father must have been God. Uh, it's not that kind of story at all. There, There is no account of God impregnating a human woman in, in, in the manner of the Greek myths in order to produce a marvelous offspring. It's not that kind of story. It's the kind of story of Abraham and Sarah, of um, of Moses and his mother, of Samson, of Hannah and Samuel. That's the type of story this is. It's about the way God acts in history. And for, for me, so you can see how this is another way where the creed knits together Old Testament and New. What happens in Jesus is not in total discontinuity with everything that has come before. It is actually a fulfillment of the story of Israel, a recapitulation of God's work in the people of Israel. I think as well, by the way, just getting back to this conversation we just had about power, the fact that at the defining turning points of history, God acts through pregnancy and childbirth is amazing and says a lot about the faith that we share as Christians and says a lot about why we don't have a conception of power that is based on empire and military strength and glory and majesty and all of this stuff that that the moments in history where god's power is most perfectly revealed um i shouldn't say most perfectly revealed but but the moments in history where god acts in power if i can say it like that these moments are marked out by a woman bearing a child that that's that's a very different way of i think if 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 we if we don't have this, if we didn't have this line in the creed, in one way it wouldn't matter. We we know that's in the Gospel of Luke anyway. But to me, it's a it's a it's an important reminder of what we're what we're meant to think about. If if we pray for God's will to be done in history, it's not necessarily going to look anything like we might expect. It's not going to be the kind of power that we might hope for. But it'll be better than that. 
And what's so interesting, and I, I loved this whole section. And what was what's also so interesting, it occurs to me in this moment, um, which is probably super obvious to any biblical scholar listening to this. So apologize in advance. Uh, but <laughs> the fact that in almost in all the stories that you mentioned, right, um, there's always there, there's barrenness. Um, there's scripture, there's some kind of long running, like I think of all the periods where in the prophets of talking about the barren land. So barren land people, like, I mean, just, um, and, and stories of waiting and that kind of thing. And so it's also about God meeting us in spaces of, of anguish where we're at our low points, um, where God sees us, hears our cries, and and the the and that's tinged with grief, right? Like uh, grief and difficulty, perhaps even shame. So it's like God shows up, not just like oh, I'm going to do something miraculous, but particularly at a place where God notices need and 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 demonstrates care. Uh, and that, that is kind of amazing to me. God is cool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's shift and talk about this little volume. Um, so this little volume on the apostles creed was published in 2018. And since then you've come out with a children's book, which yay, more theologians should write children's books. And I know they're starting to do that more. Um, because, uh, I will tell you that <laughs> uh, this is this is the first book um, I think I've uh, any 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 mom that has tried to find one before um, knows how difficult it is to find a good children's book about Easter. Uh, there's a lot of terrible ones, <laughs> a lot, um, and so there, there's a lot of terrible children's Bibles too. I've got to say, there's some wonderful ones as well, but it's amazing how moral injunctions will be laid on children i've had to in, i've had to put some away through biblical story <laughs> meet i remember as a parent of young children my, my children are older now i remember throwing some children's bibles in the trash because i was so appalled and so worried that this would actually condition the way they thought about the christian faith that it's stories that always have a moral with a rule like aesop's fables type type stuff. Anyway, well, I interrupted you. I know. <laughs> oh man, we could talk about that all day, but we won't. Uh, so, I, but I was thrilled by this book because it, it, you know, it talks about what the Apostles' Creed talks about. So it's a, it talks about what Christianity is, but um, uh, it, I'm like, oh, it'll be good for the, it'll be good for the Easter season. So I, this is a gorgeous book, theologically, literarily, and visually. Um, so in a moment, uh, we'll be hearing a short interview with Tasha Kennedy, the illustrator, but I, I, I want to begin by asking you how you approached writing this book. And as a theologian um, who has taught young kids, I've taught kids for a very long time um, in, in, uh, in church settings, elementary and, and younger, uh, I have mad respect for you. Uh, this book makes theology clear, understandable, even, even, but it keeps the mystery, um, but it's also warm um, and inviting. So there's, there's a, there's kind of a, an element of feeling as well as conveying. Uh, this is not an easy feat. So how did you get into this space? Thanks, Amy. Well, thanks for your kind words. In some ways, writing a book about the creed for adults is, is good practice for the real thing, which is trying to 
write it for children. I did not approach it thinking, okay, I know a lot about the creed. I'm going to dumb that down into a version that even people without much understanding could uh, comprehend. I didn't approach it like that. I, I just started from scratch with the creed and began to, I really got into headspace by experimenting with different types of voice like what what rhetorical register do, do, do I want this to have um, and tried to find a voice a kind of flavor that does sound like a parent speaking with their child I know from having raised young children I'm still raising children but they're not that young anymore but I know from having raised young children they are very intelligent beings I mean their intelligence puts adult intelligence to shame. Just look at how children can learn languages, for example, um, and the capacity of children to absorb information questioningly, I think is remarkable. And so one of the things I tried to do was ask lots of questions. I, I tried to take the creed. I don't think it has that apologetic sort of flavor that we talked about with the adult one. I tried to take the creed as a given, just, just something that is 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 a fact this is this is the christian faith um but at every point to try to ask questions about it that would invite reflection that would trigger some of that wondering some of that imagination um and i tried as well i think to have there's a pretty strong sort of inwardness about it i think there's there's a fair bit of self-reflection and, and asking about myself and where I fit in into the world. That was that was at least what was going on in my head. But the process itself was really fun because um, working with an illustrator, which I'd never done before, um, and Natasha Kennedy was was really fun to work with because for the most part, she wanted to wait for me to produce some text and then to try to illustrate it. Sometimes the illustration came first, and that influenced the way I thought about the text. Um, sometimes I redid the te text based on what... Illustrating has certain constraints that I'm not used to thinking about. Um, you can't represent everything in pictures. You have to have a way of... There's only certain things that you can do with pictures. So sometimes the constraints of what was pictureable <laughs> conditioned what I decided to say in the text. And sometimes Natasha had done a beautiful illustration and she went completely away and scrapped it based on what I was doing in the text. So there was a sort of a theological, biblical dialogue going on between us in word and picture where we were negotiating together how to, how to come up with, uh, with something that would be an educative, spiritual sort of resource for families. Yeah, that's one. I mean, it's wonderful. And there's a few, you know, resources in there um, for scriptures and stuff for families and or to talk through the creed and that kind of thing. And I will say, I, I'm glad that you had these thoughts about small children being small. My son is almost three. And you know what he question he's been asking recently about pretty much every book we read. And, and especially it's interesting around when we're reading, you know, some kind of Bible story, he looks at us and goes, who's talking? And, and you tell him, and, and sometimes it's obvious that it's a character, uh, but other times it's a narrator. How do you, un how do you <laughs> explain a narrator? Um, but, and, but he is not satisfied with, you know, you have to explain like 
what a narration is. And <laughs> so I, he has this, he has an understanding of that. He's not even three. So, um, and I don't think he's like necessarily a complete unicorn, but it, so that just tells me that kids are, um, they're processing material at ways that oftentimes we patronize them. Uh, and absolutely. That is a great example too, because some of the most sophisticated and, and confounding problems in, in literary theory are basically versions of that question. Who's talking here? Well, it's not exactly, the, the narrator is not just the author, for example, um, and not exactly a character in the story and so on. I, I think that's a, I mean, that's a lovely example of the fact that the, the big questions that scholars discuss, I think often are theoretical attempts to grapple with the kinds of questions that that even children will ask. Anyway, that's that's a lovely example. It also reminds me of Augustine's expositions of the Psalms, where pretty much every Psalm he begins by saying, "All right, brothers and sisters, they, they were they were sermons. Who's speaking here? Whose whose voice are we listening to?" Uh, so so your son has has promising days ahead <laughs> as a, as, a, as an interpreter and literary theorist. I would say. <laughs> So we will take a moment to now hear from illustrator Natasha Kennedy. Hey, great to be here. So Natasha is a freelance illustrator from Seattle, Washington. So excited that you're here. Um, Let's just jump right in. Could you talk a little bit about the inspirations for the scenes that accompany the lines of the creed in this lovely children's book? Yeah. um, Yeah, actually, in the back of the book, we, my editor and a few others on the team put together this list of scriptures where um, we kind of all got together before writing the book and, and came up with those so that we could draw from scripture and draw from the life of Jesus as we illustrated the creed. Um, so yeah, most of the inspiration came from scripture. Um, we definitely used Ben's book as inspiration as well, but um yeah, it mostly mostly came from that list, actually. Yeah, and I thought that was really helpful, right? To have these this list in the back that has, oh, I can look at these scriptural references as I'm looking at, you know, reading through the creed and learning about this, working with my kids and, and that kind of thing. Can you give um, maybe one or two examples that you really enjoyed working on and felt like you really just enjoyed, like, capturing? Yeah, um, I mean, definitely all of them, but one specifically that comes to mind um, was I actually, for the Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead spread, um, I originally illustrated it with kind of like two sides of Jesus, the, you know, the the wrath and then the mercy sides and the sheep and the goats. And Ben basically wrote back and was like, this is great and all, but um he's like i've actually i've actually written this book to focus more on the believer and 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 we want the kids reading this who are like we we expect that the kids reading this are you know children being brought up in the household of faith and so what does the judgment mean for them and so like i read i reread his chapter on the judgment and was just so moved because um it's so much more about when we go to our judgment and when we, when we see Jesus, the person who's judging us is the one who died for us. So 
um, I redrew that spread and we emphasized Jesus and like the nails in his hands, you know, and receiving um, kind of like a diverse audience into heaven of children and, and adults and stuff. And so that one, that's probably my favorite spread in the book because <laughs> it was like so transformative for me. <laughs> Yeah. So you kind of hinted on this or, or hinted at this already, but what was it like to work with a theologian? And um, and what kind of surprised you about that collaboration? And I we you know, we just heard a uh, you know a little anecdote from Ben about um, you know kind of this collaborative piece of having kind of a, a theological conversation about depicting these images um, uh, around the, like the he descended into dead section. So I'd be curious to hear like what it was like on your end. Totally. Um, I really love it, first of all. Um, and, and it's and then at the same time, it's very intimidating because everything you draw, you're saying something theologically. You know, you're 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 teaching children something, and I say a uh, picture's worth a thousand words. I'm like, oh dang, you know, <laughs> like um, but I'm also, yeah, I'm I'm married to a uh, biblical theologian who's always trying to get me to draw stuff for his classes and whatnot. So I have a little bit of experience, um, you know, doing that, but this was my first (laughs) official time doing a project like this. So it was actually really exciting um, and inspiring. And it makes me think way harder about what I'm teaching my kids. And um, it's, it's made me, it's hard because it's made me that much more critical about other illustrations. Cause I noticed like, look what they're saying just by drawing this thing, you know? Um, so it, it's, it's really intimidating. I mean, especially like, I know I won't have done it perfectly, you know, um, there, there will always be things that you don't get right, but, but it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I also, I also want to ask you a little bit about the process of communicating important ideas. I mean, you just mentioned the weight, right, of and obvious with the audience being and kids are not dumb, right? Like, I mean, they pick up on so much and even more that they than they know and more than we know. Right. Um, and they also they love beautiful things. They like things in order. They like things that are colorful. They like things that are mysterious. I mean, there's just so much going on there. They're, they really can be very sophisticated <laughs> in how they receive art. Um, so, you know, as far as communicating important ideas, you have some, the theology in this book is definitely like it's visualized, right? So it's not merely just the scenes and like, well, how do you depict the judgment, but also you have very intentional choices about race, age, gender. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, um, that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, And the team that I worked with to make this book, we all, like, obviously, like, you know, Jesus was Jewish, and we love that about him. But we also, we also wanted to say more than that. You know, like we were like affirming what's true about the Bible, but by drawing pictures, we want to be telling kids more, more truths as well. And so we really wanted a wide range of skin colors, age and gender. And and there were like times where I draw a picture and send it to my editor, Todd, who's really like kind of the, you know, mastermind behind <laughs> these books. But, you know, I'd send him a picture and he'd be like, why aren't there children, you know, in this page, like this, the uh, forgiveness of sins, you know, you have all these people who were 
going to cast stones on the woman. And he was like, you need to add a child because they're sinners too, you know, or um, yeah. Like why, why aren't we need women receiving the spirit on the page where the, uh, you know, the spirit descended, um, you know, on Pentecost, like we need women there too. It wasn't just the disciples who were there, you know? So we, and we like on every page, I, um, I have this like, you know, palette that I draw from that's just got this really wide range of colors. And if I, I want to hit them all, you know, like each range for every page, because I just, you want a kid to read this and see themselves. And you want an adult to read this and see themselves as well. We, we like subtitled it um, for all God's children, because we kind of wanted that, like, yeah, that feel that this is, that, that we're all children that are supposed to receive this. And we're, we're all learning this together, you know? And so, yeah, we just, we wanted everyone to be able to see themselves in the book. That's kind of the, the big thing is that Jesus came as a human. He came as someone familiar. Um, so that's, we wanted to depict that, I guess. So as you were working through the creed and writing, uh, and these, you know, kind of writing and art, these reflections for kids, which of the words or phrases became more meaningful to you and helped you connect with the creed in a new way? I mean, it's really hard to choose because they've kind of all really become a bigger deal to me after working on this book. You know, I was, I was raised pretty evangelical and and not very traditional and um, didn't grow up saying the creed, you know, so this has now become like a household thing that we all say together since working on this book, you know? And so like, I think each, each line is like holding new significance, but I would have to, if I was to pick one in particular, I would, I would call back to the one I referenced before about the judgment that I feel like I'm just seeing it in such a different way now because I'm seeing it as, as grace, as mercy, you know? So that, that one definitely is kind of special to my heart these days. Lovely. What is your hope for this book? My hope is children picking it up and falling in love with the, the different lines of the creed and and the details of, of their faith. Um, yeah, falling in love with the with the truths, and if the pictures help them, help it feel familiar, and it helps it feel accessible, um, then I feel like I've done my job, um, and it makes me really happy to think about the fact that there's that there's kids that aren't just my kids reading this book. Yeah, I think um, I mean, you've mentioned you know being a parent, right? How how do you see kind of how would you hope that parents are like? What is your hope for like parents interacting with children? I like to imagine parents and kids learning something together at the same time. Like even for me reading, when I read aloud Ben's words that he wrote in this book to my kids the first time, I felt like, whoa, <laughs> like things were, were hitting me, you know, and I've been working on this book for months and it, it still was very transformative for me. And so I think I would like to see parents um, kind of believing more and more in what it means really to catechize your kids and um, to teach them the foundations of their faith and to fall in love with it themselves. That's lovely. Um, And speaking of catechize, I know that there's a a little play on words here (laughs) with some of the, you know, and and as a parent who reads, um, you know, uh, lots of 
of Books to Kids, one of my favorite pieces is always that kind of interactive element of finding a finding a little character that's on every page, find the book. And then this one, right, it's a cat because catechesis. <laughs> catechism, yeah. I can't believe we got away with that. We we kind of dreamed that up early on. We're like, they're not gonna let us call this book fat cat, but they did. So <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I we love, love that. It. And, you know, just any way that a, a child can kind of interact with things and, and to have it be a, a moment of connection between parent and child and also between both parent and child and, and the text. Um, and and by text, I'm also text is words. It's also the art, right? Because all of that together communicates something. Well, Natasha, this is a lovely book, and I am delighted that it exists in the world. Um, what's uh, What's next for you? Do you have an, uh, any any other books on your agenda at this point? Well, I've just finished two more Fat Cat books, and we've just sent them to the printers. So we've got uh, The Lord's Prayer coming, which I'm really excited about, and um, a Christmas book. That um, is also really exciting. Oh, so. that's wonderful. Well, and and. I am yeah. looking forward to those. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, Natasha, it was lovely talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much for this opportunity. And we're back with Ben. So I'm curious with the doing the children's version and having you know version for quote unquote adults, right? Um, the phrase of he descended into hell. Um, I'm curious, um, as you're working through the creed and writing these reflections uh, for kids um, and thinking about how to process like really intense ideas, um, how did you kind of think around specifically some of the more difficult ones, like he descended into hell? So, um, but before I, you know, you answer that question, um, I think we should, I'm going to have you read it because it's lovely. And then I want you to just kind of reflect on the process of thinking about this kind of phrase. Sure. Thanks, Amy. So here's the page for he descended, he descended into hell. Where will I go when I die? Where do all the dead go? Wherever it is, Jesus went there too. He went down as far as we had fallen. He took death's keys to free the captives. He overcame death with his life. He took Eve and Adam, our first parents, by the hand and made them his sister and brother. When I die, Jesus meets me there and takes me by the hand. He is God's strong son, my strong brother. Is anything stronger than death? Yes, Jesus. That's what I believe. So what, what was it like being like, we got to talk about death? <laughs> I didn't mind talking about death again from my own experience as a parent. I never found with my children that death was a forbidden topic. In fact, kids reach a certain age where they start to ask very real questions about the mortality of their parents, the mortality of pets, their own mortality. And I think it's important. This is not like parenting advice or anything, but I think it's important not to lie about these things, not to avoid them, but to speak about them as openly and as honestly and as freely as possible. And I guess in this page, I did find this page a hard one. So thanks for singling this this out. Uh, and I had a lot of a lot of feedback. I didn't mention this before, but the 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 publishers were amazing to work with because they kept 
I, I would do up a version of a page and they would send it out to parents to test run on their kids. They would send it out to theologians to scrutinize. I, the peer review process was far more rigorous than any journal article or, or book I've worked on before. And I did get a lot of feedback um, with this page. I think that at least the spirit of what I was trying to do was to, I suppose, to sort of start with where we're at. There's a reference here to death. We're talking about Jesus's death. I'm aware of my own mortality. If some children reading are not aware of that, I, I don't mind introducing that as a topic for conversation. Um, how can you talk about the creed without acknowledging that there is something called death and this this happens to people. Our, our faith is anchored in a particular death that happened uh, to a particular person in history. So it sort of takes the readers, I suppose, own, ex, uh, own not experience of mortality, but awareness of a concept of mortality, takes that as a starting point and then tries to bring that into dialogue somehow with the world of the Bible, the world of the creed. Um, again, I mentioned before that I asked questions in the book. The first two questions on this page, where will I go when I die? Where do all the dead go? I mean, I literally don't know the answer to those questions. I don't know if you do. Um, but then the line after that, wherever it is, Jesus went there too. I that, loved that. This is not <laughs> like this is not me dumbing down. I, I, I'm a professional theologian. I know a huge amount. I'm going to dumb it down. No, I'm literally telling you <laughs> All of my thoughts on this topic I've just distilled for you. I don't know any more than that. And I suppose that's reflective of the of the book in, in some ways. I didn't feel like I was leaving a lot out. I felt like I was trying to distill things down. Um, but my yeah, my my own perception, my my own understanding of my mortality is not that much more advanced than a, a, a child can grasp like none of us can fully fathom the fact of our mortality and and yet we confess a faith that puts death and puts resurrection from death right at the center so to me that just means we need to be able to talk we need to be able to ask questions we need to be able to think about our lives somehow in the context of the fact that we die and that we hope for the resurrection of the dead i'm not doing a very good job of re reflecting on it but but i think it sounds great it's hard like writing <laughs> Writing, writing theology is really hard. Yes, it is. Um, and you try, you try to tell the truth. You try to be honest. You especially try to tell the truth and be honest when you're talking to children who can spot fake answers a oh, mile they away. Are, they have um, an intense BS meter. <laughs> like they know immediately when you are padding something. Well, why? Why? You know, what is now? Um, can you say, you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Say it more clearly. And then you have to be more direct. Um, some of the most intense questions I've ever received are from people who are, are younger than fourth grade. Um, <laughs> and so when I, when I teach undergraduates, I, you know, I always posit like the Trinity um, in the context of having to communicate it to a fourth grader. And what's always fascinating is from their perspective, you know, they're early twenties, right? So they think, well, you know, I'm going to use an analogy and kind of leave it that there's, I was like, oh no, <laughs> they will not let you get away with that. 
that is not enough. <laughs> yeah. They will, they will be like, really? It's an egg. Can you do better than that? Like, <laughs> it's gotta be more. Um, and, uh, so I, 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 I appreciate the kind of sense of, well, we don't know, but we also know. And it's a really hard thing to say. And, and the creed is not an authority that drops down on us. You know what I mean? It's the, the, the creed for me personally, and I hope in a book like this, it's a way of giving voice to real questions about myself, about life, about death. You, you know, it's, it, it's giving you a vocabulary to talk about things that are of ultimate importance. It's not telling you all the right answers. It's not telling you what death is, what hell is, what heaven is, but it's giving you a language to talk about your life in the context of those realities. Um, If I can say one more thing about this page, because I've got it open in front of me here, this was a great example of where the the dialogue with the illustrator was with Natasha Kennedy was really formative too, because she used the um, Eastern Orthodox icon of the resurrection as the, it's, it's one of my favorite illustrations here stylized with the cat in there and everything else but it's it's the icon of the resurrection where you see jesus um breaking the gates of hell there are keys and locks scattered over the ground he's freed the captives and even adam who've been in their coffins he's seized them by the hand and is in the process of rising as he rises we rise with him none of the none of the things that happen to Jesus here, his death, his descent, his resurrection. None of them are just individual events, but things that have happened to the human race in some way. Anyway, the fact, I, I, I recall now that we're talking about it, I had prepared text and then I saw Natasha's picture of this icon. And that, that really changed my approach because I thought, right, I've got to mention Adam and Eve now because the picture won't make enough sense without that. And so then this sense of the collective, that the descent into hell was a collective act that it happened to my first parents, it happened to me, um, that actually flowed out of the illustrator's choice of the, the picture. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Um, thanks, Natasha. Yes, oh, and, and that's wonderful because that particular section jumped out at me. as being, Oh, that's, that's a, a lovely way of, of kind of engaging all of us and not thinking of this just as sort of a past event. Um, but it's something that happens to everyone. And think of think of how else it could have, if, if you had to illustrate for children a two-page spread on hell, think of all the ways that could have gone wrong. <laughs> to have done it in this way where you're, you're, what you're depicting is the strength of Jesus, the, 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 the love and grace and power that are revealed in his resurrection. Um, yeah, I think, I think it was a quite inspired way of handling that, that topic there are there are coffins there we're, we're not playing make-believe like like death is not serious it's just that there's something even more serious going on here we're gonna transition to our speed round you sounded a little bit a little bit wary of this earlier but it's gonna be okay all right ready quick answers if you could compete as any professional athlete for a day who would it be Maybe Chris Froome or someone who can win the Tour de France. Nice. It takes three weeks, though, not a day, but that's what I would do. <laughs> tea or coffee? Tea. 
If you got to hang out with any theologian, living or dead, who would it be? Augustine. Yeah, I was like, if he doesn't say Augustine, I'll be really surprised. (laughs) Do you think it's important humans colonize Mars? Why or why not? Very important uh, because there's uh, a, a lot of opportunity for real estate with spectacular views. And there's only so many houses with views that you can plonk on Earth. It'll reach a point where we need to <laughs> go to We space. need more views. <laughs> oh, I might be, that might be one of my favorite answers to that question. It's for the view. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay. What is your favorite magical or mythological animal? I'm pretty fond of um, unicorns just because of... We, we had like a unicorn themed party once with the kids and it's just pretty cool. Like a horse is already the coolest creature on earth and then you make it better. Just think of that. <laughs> what is the strangest question you've ever received from someone about theology? Oh my, I have received very strange uh, emails and letters including handwritten letters uh, where someone wanted to share with me their uh, view about the book of Revelation, for example, or about the impending end of the world. Not usually in the form of a question beyond, are you already (laughs) aware of all this? Or would you like my self-published book to let you in on the secret? (laughs) I've received quite a few of those over the years. I got one once that included a full color, full out dispensational map like a timeline. I actually use it in class. I'm like, thanks for that. (laughs) Appreciate you. I'm not using it the way you hoped, but (laughs) thank you for the, thank you for the visual aid. (laughs) I went to a church as a kid that used those fold out charts and they are um, very confident. I'll say that it takes confident to map out the spiritual history of the universe on a fold out piece of paper. So this might be related, or maybe not. Uh, What's one idea in theology you think needs to die? This is not not necessarily an idea from theology, but an assumption among uh, many contemporary Christians that the normative mode of life for Christians is marriage and family, uh, I think is hugely problematic and hugely out of line, really, with... with, um, Christian history and scripture. Yes. And so, and, and next question, this one will be coming from somebody, you know, with literature, right. Background. What is the most recent work of fiction you've read that you just couldn't put down? I really liked Piranesi by Susanna Clark. I think I've got the name of the book, right. It's set in this weird parallel universe where only two characters exist and they're in some kind of the setting is really quite uh memorable i couldn't put that down i read that almost in a sitting wow oh note that on my goodreads list beach or mountains for the holiday beach i'm in australia and (laughs) we never get bored of it the beach is right there but we don't get sick of it (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, if I was going to ask somebody in New Zealand, you know, it's like, well, beach or mountain. Well, you do both in the same day. So why not? Um, what's the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? 
So you can't cheat and say a new translation of Confessions. So uh, most significant book in theology in the last 50 years. I'm just doing the maths to calculate. In, in my brain, that's 1950, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like early 70s. That's actually quite, yeah. if you said since the 50s, it'd 70s. be easier. Um, I'll th- I, I know I'll think of a better answer later, but if I could refer to a sort of body of work, I think Peter Brown's work on Christian antiquity for me is oh. like really significant and really shed so much light on so many aspects of what Christianity actually is and where it comes from. Um, maybe I'll pick that. I, I know I'll think of something else later. Well, I mean, you really can't go wrong with Peter Brown. <laughs> uh, you know, as far as uh, um, someone who, I mean, uh, a brief commercial for anyone who's like, oh, who's, who's Peter Brown? Uh, pick up his biography of Augustine and there you go. <laughs> even to and some of know. his, even to some of his essays, like his essay on the power of the holy man in his journal article on the holy man in Christian antiquity. Really, if he had only written that, you we would still know who Peter Brown was, and such a he has such a power for uncovering facets of Christian identity in in the ancient world that. You know, he can seize upon a detail that makes us see the whole picture differently. Wonderful scholar. Okay, you're done with the speed brown, so now you can breathe a sigh of relief. That was actually, I expected that to be hard, and it was harder. So well done. (laughs) So, uh, well, at least, okay, so when I, because I did an interview with OnScript years ago, um, uh, they made me sing, so at least you didn't have to do that. I would have so, loved that because I don't really have any shame. I can't sing, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not embarrassed about it. You probably would have got so, Christmas carols or something, though, which would be oh. unseemly at this time of year. <laughs> what is your hope for these two books? I hope that in some ways my hope for these books is just a small expression of my hope for Christianity today. I, I hope that Christianity, uh, that, that Christians think seriously about their faith, that that combination of heart and head that I mentioned earlier with Augustine, I, I, I hope that that's what we're always moving towards, figuring out how to love God, not just with our heart, but with our mind figuring out how to make even our doubts and questions into um, the, the sort of materials that, that our faith works with and that uh, for families with children that I, I hope that Christianity won't be presented as a top-down authority structure that you're meant to subject your mind to, but as, but as a kind of wide open space that you can visit opens up your mind, that opens up your questions, that um, in, invites you to think and to explore and to wonder. Um, so I hope that neither of these is a particularly like high caliber intellectual book, but they're designed to get you thinking. And I, and I hope that that's what they'll do. And what are you working on now? Mostly now I'm working on theology and literature, which is pretty much my favorite topic um my favorite area for research and i'm especially interested in 17th century poetry 
George Herbert, John Milton, John Donne, this, this sort of stuff. I think with theology, you often get descriptions of the Christian faith fairly objectively, as it were. Here's, here's what Christians believe. Here's how we've done it in the past. Here's what the Bible says. With poetry, if you know the poetry of George Herbert, for example, you still get theology, but it's the kind of interior landscape of the soul. The, the, this, the, the person who believes, let's say, in justification by faith in, in one of Herbert's poems, the person who believes this, here's what the psychology of that belief is like. Here's what this does to your, your not just your thinking, but your feeling. And so I'm very interested by that sort of interior approaching theology from within the subject, from within the one who says I believe. And uh, for me, poetry is is the best way into that and, and the best way of um, taking something that's already hard, theology, and making it even far more mysterious, far more complex, because all the complexities of what it means for me to be a human being with with thoughts and feelings, all of that comes into the mix as well. Wonderful. Well, I, I look forward to seeing some of that. Um, some of those poets that you mentioned are some of my favorites from that time. So I look forward to it. Well, what a delight it was to talk with you, Ben. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thanks so much for having me. This is your host, Amy Hughes, with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Ben Myers, director of the Graduate Research School at Alpha Crucis College. Ben's book, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism, and The Apostles' Creed for All God's Children are published by Lexham. You can find links to the books on our website, onscript.study. Thank you for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.